Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. I admit that I've got a soft spot for PFLAG parents. PFLAG is the organization originally known as Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. The first people I interviewed for my first book more than 30 years ago were a powerhouse PFLAG couple, Amy and Dick Ashworth. And one of PFLAG's founding mothers, Jean Manford, was already one of my heroes long before I started work on my oral history book about the LGBTQ civil rights movement. You can hear Jean and her son Morty's story in our first season. So is it any wonder when I met Paulette Goodman at a PFLAG fundraiser in San Francisco in 1989 that I fell for her hook, line, and sinker? And it wasn't just that Paulette was a PFLAG mom. It was her backstory that got to me, too. I was raised in a neighborhood in Queens, New York, filled with Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria who fled the war or survived the Holocaust. Paulette had a survivor story all her own. So here's the scene. I arrive at Paulette's tidy ranch house in Silver Spring, Maryland on a cold December evening. It's one of those days when I've scheduled back-to-back interviews and had to skip lunch. So I'm not just cold, I'm hungry. Thankfully, Paulette has set out snacks on the dining room table. She introduces me to her husband, Leo, who retreats to the kitchen to prepare dinner. I'm hoping they'll invite me to stay. Paulette is my idea of a picture-perfect Jewish mother, warm, full-figured, a crown of gray hair, and very concerned that I have enough to eat. While my mind is clearly on food, I force myself to focus on why I'm sitting at Paulette's dining room table. I pull my clipboard from my backpack with the questions I've already prepared and get my tape recorder set up so it doesn't separate me from the snacks. I clip one microphone to my sweater and another to Paulette's blouse and press record. Interview with Paulette Goodman, Friday, December 15th, 1989, 4.30 p.m. Location is the home of Paulette Goodman in Silver Spring, Maryland. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. So I'd like to start with uh, a simple one. When, when were you born? In 1933. Mm-hmm. 
in what part in of Paris, the world? France. What was life like for you during the war? We were Jews. We uh, were made to wear the Star of David on our clothing. My best friend called me you dirty Jew, yet she wouldn't let somebody else call me that. <laughs> but you know how kids are, just like you, you queer, you faggot, same thing. We knew that uh, we weren't supposed to be in any public place. Why not? You know, in France, uh, the school week, Thursday, you had the day off. And um, on Thursdays, that was children's time to go to the movies. Jews were not allowed in movie houses. Why not? So, why not? Yeah. Because that was decreed by the Germans. <laughs> and so, if you wore your Star of David, you knew you weren't supposed to be there. So, we would take off our Star of David uh, under a uh, threat of, you know, being found out and the whole family would have been wiped, wiped out. Weren't you frightened doing that as a kid? Or, you, or kids are kids and you don't... You, you, you're kind of uh, uptight about it. You knew that things were happening. And especially since um, in 1942, I think, my sister, her husband, and their four-year-old child uh, were picked up and taken to concentration camp. So the, the, the police and the Gestapo went to my sister's home. And that very same day, they took both my sister and her husband. My sister was French citizen. My brother-in-law was born in Poland. He was not a French citizen. And I think they were rounding up the non, what they call the aliens, the non-French mm -hmm. people. The following morning, my aunt, um, who lived in the neighborhood, was supposed to go visit my sister. And she did, and she found out what happened. My sister had begged, had pleaded to leave the little boy with the concierge, you know, the, um, the super of the building. Because they she, didn't want the child, they just wanted the two of them. Well, they wanted the three of them. But my sister knew that if they took the little boy... He would be killed. I mean, she, she, we knew by that time what was going on. Oh, oh God. So she begged, and, and she left my nephew. The next day, my aunt went and heard what happened, and I don't know why she didn't bring the little boy home. Maybe the concierge wouldn't give him to her. But then my mother sent my sister Gabby to pick up André, and as they were walking back towards where in our neighborhood, they were followed by the police and the Gestapo. They followed her to our apartment, and she came up with the two French policemen. The Gestapo stayed downstairs, and uh, they told Mrs. Rosenberg, um, not in Madame Rosenberg, um, you will have to let this little boy go with us because his mother is asking for him. And my mother says, if my daughter did not take the child yesterday, that means she doesn't want him to, to, to be there. And I have brought up nine children and I can bring up a tenth. Please leave me my grandchild. This was her first grandchild. She tore her hair out. She, I mean, she made such a scene. And we were there in the kitchen when that happened. And, you know, I remember everything that happened. And they said, look, you better quiet down and you better let the child go because if you don't, there are those two Gestapo downstairs. They'll come up and they'll take all of you with all the children. So they had no choice. They took my nephew and he was reunited with my sister. Uh, and I think they spent several months uh, in Drancy, which was a camp mm -hmm. right outside of Paris. 
and even, and we did get a couple of letters, you know, through the letters over the wall. Uh, we even sent some packages, whatever my mother could get her hold of to, you know, some food uh, in that camp. And then uh, we knew they were sent to Auschwitz and we never heard from them again. So that's the background. Now I know what it's like to be in the closet. I know what it's like to be a minority, to be threatened. Uh, I lost uh, most of our family except for uh, my immediate brothers and sisters. Uh, um, one, my older sister, uh, never came back, but aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, people who, whom I never knew, who lived in Poland, were mm -hmm. all exterminated. Why did your family leave France? You survived the war miraculously. My parents felt that they never wanted us to go through this experience again. What year did you move to the United States? 1949. When I heard you speak recently, you talked about the whole notion of freedom coming to the, to, to the United States. Did yes. you feel that at the time? Oh yes, we wanted to, to live in freedom and safety. And that's what the United States represented? Yes, yes. My, my parents had loved France. Uh, I don't think they would have ever left if it weren't for for the children, really mm -hmm. wanting to, to have a new life for us. A safe life. A safe life. Paulette Goodman interview, tape two, side one. Okay. Um, so no, my sister was not expecting me for dinner. She did not invite me for dinner. All right, so I'm That's glad I invited you. Thank you. I was starved. Because <laughs> I missed lunch, too. Oh, my. You should uh, have said something right away. Well, actually, I had plenty of crackers, too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, let's jump many years later now. Mm -hmm. Your son is gay, correct? Mm -hmm. Daughter is gay. Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember when you spoke, which it was. I said my child because um, she's not comfortable with my... You know, she feels that if I... If I talk about her, it's invading her privacy. So, because I've been so public, uh, I say my gay child. And okay. it's interesting that the press picks up gay son right away. And I do too. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. This is her picture. This was taken last April. Her 29th birthday. Mm, she's my age. Well, a year younger. Mm -hmm. So what I'd, I'd like to do then is jump to when you first became aware of this as an issue in your life. Well, my daughter had been dating since she was 15 and a half. The young man was seven years older than she was, and he became a friend of the family. They seemed to be compatible, inter similar interests in music and writing mm -hmm. and all that. And um, he was dating her until her... Uh, second year in college and there she fell in love with a young woman and that was at the end of that relationship so when we moved here you didn't know about this though mm -mm. when we moved here he wrote me a letter saying that she was having that she had a very special friend at school and he thought it was more than a friendship oh boy so <sighs> we all started to go but I never said breathe a word of it to Leo first I thought it's a phase she's going through. Um, she'll meet the right fellow and things will be different. It's none of my business. And I, I didn't know quite how to deal with it. 
finally, um, nine months later, I, I told Leo about what the young man had written. And uh, he said, so what? <laughs> so <laughs> I was relieved. Uh, three months after that, she came home uh, for summer vacation. And uh, I sensed that she'd come out to her dad that day because she wanted to go for a ride with him. And when she came home, I was furious. I was so angry. Why? Because I felt she didn't trust me. Mm. I was hurt. You know, I'm her mother. I love her. So she came home and you were furious. What did you oh, say? Yeah. I, I confronted her. And then we started to talk. She was crying and she said the only reason was she thought I'd never understand. She was afraid I, you know, wouldn't let her finish school. Um, we would cut her off. It must have made you feel terrible finding out that she was so afraid of what you might do to her. That's right. You know, here is a, a mother, a devoted, loving parent, and a child is just afraid, can't come to you. I think that's a terrible thing. And I was angry with her for not coming out to me. But, you know, since I've been involved in Parents' Flag, I've spoken to a lot of kids on college campuses. We give coming out to parents workshops, and many of them say that um, they're not ready to come out to the parents, and even if the parents confronted them, they would deny it mm -hmm. because they're not ready, and that's probably what... So being involved helped me understand my, my child and, and, you know, but the dynamics of it all. In retrospect? Not when it happened. No. In terms of your own education, what happened from that time? I heard a public announcement on the radio and a telephone number, and I don't remember exactly how it went, but essentially if there's someone gay in your life, you know, and you have questions, you can call this number. And I called and I talked to Gene Baker, and he was having meetings at his home at the time, in 1981. What was the meeting like? There were about three or four parents and a couple of gay men, and uh, we, we talked, and I found it very helpful, and I got hooked into it because I, th I saw that I could help others. Uh -huh. And uh, I started having meetings at my home. You know, this was 1982 already. Mm -hmm. What kind of parents came? Parents who just found out they had gay children. Your work at this time was social service oriented. Mm -hmm. At some point, you became something of an activist. More politi Yes, yes. How did that happen? Well, that happened this early. Is, your daughter didn't ask you to do that, or did no, she? No, no, no. And uh, this happened because in 1983, we became a chapter of Parents Flag. And late in 1983, uh, in Montgomery County, there were people getting together to try to get, uh, to add sexual orientation to the human, human uh, rights ordinance. In Montgomery in County. In Montgomery County. And um, a gay couple, two young men, uh, came to one of our meetings and asked for our help. And I testified. There were a lot of fundamentalists in the audience. And uh, they made their voices heard. They were saying that such law is not needed on, one, on the one hand and then saying bad things on the other. <laughs> Put them on an island and nuke them. And um, a lot of uh, terrible things were being said. This uh, councilman kept bringing up bestiality, and uh, I was so uptight, so upset. And I really, you know, was in the closet still. It was difficult for me. Why did you think the ordinance was necessary? 
I didn't know about it, and I really mm. had no opinion. But as I went to the to the hearings, uh -huh. and I saw the um, the nastiness, the bigotry, I realized that it was very necessary because there were people out there who would see to uh, who would support um, a landlord throwing somebody out just on the basis of, of their gayness, uh, people being denied jobs or being thrown out of their jobs because they're found out to be gay, wanting to share a room and having difficulties if they're found out to be gay. So um, I really felt this was very unfair. Did it remind you at all of your experience in Europe? I really felt irked that people should be discriminated against. You know, th this never sat with me very well. I didn't see why my child should be uh, considered less uh, a person than than my non-gay child. Um, I, I really, you know, I'm a maverick. It, these, these injustices never sat with me very well. Mm -hmm. You didn't just come out of the closet in a little way. You went... <laughs> yeah, with a bang. And you know what I say when I speak now? What? I've been doing it for, with a vengeance ever since. Uh -huh. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because oh. I, I was boiling inside. I was so stifled. I, my sense of justice is very strong and I, I felt I, I wanted to speak. Um, here this was a new organization. I was the head of it and how could we reach out to people if I was not able to, to speak openly. Mm -hmm. And so it was very liberating. But after I became liberated, I, I really found a great deal of uh, satisfaction in speaking out. And I also found that because of my uh, reasonableness, uh, being a parent, having gray hair, um, people listened to what I had to say, uh, respected what I said, uh, and I was believable to a lot of people. And then knowing that this was helping families meant a great deal to me. And there's nothing like knowing that you are doing something for someone to get you hooked, mm -hmm. you know. When you say liberating, how do you mean? What was the feeling? The feeling to be, to be free to, to speak. Mm -hmm. I did fear uh, for a while, you know, you never know what kind of nuts are out there. And they, they might throw a bomb at my house or something. You know, you are fearful. And then I realized that I, if I didn't conquer that fear, I, I just couldn't function. And, and then I decided I'll have to take my chances. It's better than to be afraid. But I do know from experience, parents who speak out or who advocate on behalf of their children are very, very strong advocates. Anytime the parents will take up the cause for their children, they will succeed. When Paulette Goodman told me about her daughter's discomfort with her mother's activism, I didn't feel particularly sympathetic toward her daughter. What I wouldn't have given for my mother to be a proud PFLAG parent fighting for my rights. Well, a few years later I got my wish and developed some sympathy for Paulette's daughter. My own mother became a staunch PFLAG parent who championed the cause. On more than one occasion, rather unkindly now that I look back, I reminded my mother that I was the gay one. It can be challenging when your parent takes up what you think of as your fight and does it in a big way. But Paulette made an important point about what parents could get done that we couldn't. During the four years Paulette was PFLAG president from 1988 through 1992, and certainly in the years before that, 
parents got listened to. They couldn't be dismissed like I could simply because I was gay. Paulette and all PFLAG parents were and are fierce advocates for LGBTQ people. My own mother is long gone, but if she were here, I'd tell her how proud I am these days of the work she did as a passionate PFLAG parent. One thing that Paulette accomplished during her time as PFLAG president made national news. She wrote to First Lady Barbara Bush, mother to mother, asking for words of support for the nation's gay children and their families. And she got those words in the form of a personal note from Barbara Bush that got picked up by the Associated Press. It's hard to imagine now the impact of the First Lady's words of support, but after eight years of the Reagan presidency and one year of the Bush presidency, when the White House virtually ignored gay people, it was historic. You can read Paulette's letter and Barbara Bush's response in the episode notes at makinggayhistory.com. I spoke with Paulette just a few days ago. She's 84, widowed, and lives at the Ryderwood Retirement Community in Silver Spring, Maryland. Paulette told me that she was having knee replacement surgery just a couple of days before we planned to post her episode. Paulette, I know you'll be listening, so please know that all of us at Making Gay History are wishing you a speedy and full recovery. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Burningham and audio engineer Ann Pope. We had production assistance from the amazing Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to social media strategist Will Coley, webmaster Jonathan Dozerizel, researchers Bronwyn Partis and Zachary Seltzer, and photo editor Michael Green. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast is made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll find all our episodes, including photographs, notes, and links to additional information about all the people we feature in Making Gay History. So long, until next time. <laughs>